As you take your seats, if you would, please uh, open up your copy of God's Word. First, to the end of the book of Judges, chapter 21, and then over to 1 Samuel. As you do, I must admit my, uh, my mistake when I submitted the passage uh, that we are studying today. Um, I forgot some of the verses. Uh, it's not a big mistake, but you know, when we turn to 1 Samuel, we'll be starting in verse 4 of chapter 8, not verse 10, as the bulletin says. My, my apologies. Uh, let's, uh, let's read God's word together. This is the word of the Lord. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 9, 2. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when, he, when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war, the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the 10th of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the 10th of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in, the day, in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard, had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his own city. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man, and there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. This is the word of the Lord. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing uh, on our time today. God and Father, you have uh, revealed your word to us from ages past. You and your wisdom know what your people need, uh, your people in Israel and your people here today. Uh, I pray that you would guide us by your spirit. Speak 
uh, your words through me. Help your word to be illuminated to us all this morning so that we uh, might uh, place our faith and our trust with confidence in your son and turn not to others. Thank you for your son. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Pastor Matt has uh, recently been working through the book of Acts, and if I can spoil a little bit, I believe he'll be turning to portions of Genesis soon. Um, and when I was thinking about what passage in scripture I wanted to turn to for my sermon uh, and, and others that would follow, uh, I wanted to try and find a connection between these books. Um, I, I love studying the story of redemption in scripture. I love watching the unfolding of God's plan to save his people. Uh, and so I've chosen to teach when I have the privilege of preaching uh, through selections of David's life. And the connection maybe between Genesis and Acts and David might seem tenuous, but there is one theme found in all three of these passages in these books uh, that I would like to focus on, and that is kingship. Um, Adam, in a very real sense, is a king. When he was created and placed in Eden, he was given dominion by God over God's new creation. And in Acts 1, we see Jesus, uh, a victorious king who has conquered sin and death, ascend to his heavenly throne. And of course, David is the ideal king of Israel. And so starting today, I want to look at how David moves us in the story of redemption and the works of God uh, through human history from Adam closer to Jesus. Um, when I was young, when I was a kid, I would often help my parents or my grandma bake uh, pies or cake or cookies for the holidays. Um, when I was younger, I really especially liked making cookies because when I was making cookies, uh, I would get to steal cookie dough and I would get to uh, uh, wait for the adults to look away and get a little bit of whatever was in the bowl. And as we would make cookie dough, we would start with butter and sugar. And once that was mixed together, uh, it, it, was, it was worth stealing a little bit, and I would when my grandma or parents weren't looking, and it was good. Uh, but it was, it was far from cookie dough, and it was not a cookie yet, but it, but it was good. Uh, and as we continued making these cookies, we'd, uh, the dough would get nearly finished, and I'd steal a little bit more, uh, and it would be better than just butter and sugar, far closer to cookies, uh, but still not the final thing, but it was still worth stealing out of the bowl. Uh, and then once the chocolate chips were added and the cookie dough was done, I would get to lick the spoon or the bowl or the mixer. Uh, and and this, this was the best part. Uh, cookie dough is the best. It, it's far better than just butter and sugar and far closer to the actual cookies that were coming, the thing that got me excited throughout the whole time. Uh, but again, even cookie dough is not as good as a cookie. Um, I, I am sure that this child experience, childhood experience is not a unique one. I hope it's not. Stealing cookie dough is one of life's simple joys. Um, and it, it, it is also uh, is a joy that helps us understand how God works in history. Uh, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are exiled from God's presence. We were made to live with God. And when Adam sinned, all that God had made good was plunged into sin and death. But immediately God promised that this sin and death would not last, that all would be made right. And over the course of human history, specifically over the course of the history of God's people, God has been moving us closer to the fulfillment of that promise. Uh, he has been moving us closer and closer to fulfilling his promises in a way that is similar to when I would make cookies with my grandma. Uh, the taste of cookie dough was better than the butter and sugar and much more like the cookies that were coming at the end of the baking process. 
And in the same way, God moves us closer to the fulfillment of his promises by giving us tastes of the final promise that are increasingly more and more like the final and full and real thing. In Eden, God lived with man. Uh, Under Moses, God gave Israel the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a far cry from Eden and a far cry from the new heavens and new earth, but it was better than nothing. After the tabernacle, there was the temple, which was still better than the tabernacle, but a far cry from new heavens and new earth. And then in the first century, God himself became man. He walked among us. And and as Jesus lived with his people, they experienced uh, the closest thing to Eden that they had yet to date. And yet, we still look forward to something. We still are longing for the new heavens and the new earth. And, And Jesus is moving us in that direction by building his church. And in the same way that the final cookie dough is closer to cookies than the raw ingredients on the counter, and in the same way that the tabernacle uh, is closer to the new heavens and the new earth than nothing, David uh, moves us closer from the failed king, Adam, to the promised and true king, Jesus. Uh, And and I want to look at how he does that today. Uh, And after all of that, um, uh, you may have gathered from the passages I read, we aren't actually going to look at David, (laughs) Uh, but we are going to look instead uh, at the Israel that David inherits when he is anointed and then eventually crowned king. Uh, And as we look at the the passages read today, I want uh, to grasp grasp the main idea that, that God's people need God's king. God's people need God's king. Um, And rather predictably, I want to take us there by looking at three points. First, that that God uh, or that a king is the right answer. And then that Israel wants the wrong king. We'll close by looking at the idea that the wrong king does move us closer to the right king. Um, The first passage that I read is from the very last chapter of the book of Judges. It's actually the final verse of that book. Uh, And many of us or some of us may be familiar uh, with the Judges cycle. It's the pattern of bondage, salvation, faithfulness, and rebellion that repeats throughout the book of Judges as God's people are delivered from foreign oppressors and then return uh, to to God and then fall away again. Um, But this Judges cycle, which is a helpful term, would probably more accurately be described as the Judges' downward spiral. Uh, Each subsequent story in the book of Judges is more bleak than the previous one. And every judge in the book of Judges delivers Israel, uh, fails to deliver Israel from their oppressors as fully as the previous judge had done. By the end of the book, when we get to a point where Israel needs no foreign ruler to oppress them because they're perfectly content to do violence to themselves, it becomes clear that Israel is in dire need of a greater salvation. And at the end of the book, the author tells us what the answer to Israel's chaos is. He says again, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I want to spend more time on that phrase, the the explanation that the, the, the author gives us in a moment. But before I do, I want to go back to the idea of Israel's king. In agreement with the passage from 1 Samuel that we read, uh, when uh, we turn to that, and we'll turn to that in a moment, uh, we often consider Israel's demand for a king to be fundamentally flawed. We, we hear this demand and we think, was God not a good enough king for you, Israel, that you demand another? And there's a lot of good, uh, goodness and truth in that concern. But what we often miss, maybe at least explicitly, is the reality that it was actually good for Israel to have a king. The author of Judges tells us that Israel needs a king. 
uh, in, uh, from Adam in the garden through Genesis 49, where Jacob blesses Judah, and then to Deuteronomy 17, where God gives laws concerning Israel's king, uh, it is clear that God has designed his people to rule, be ruled by his king made in his image. Or as C.S. Lewis put it uh, helpfully in the book, Prince Caspian, you dwarves are as forgetful and changeable as the humans. I'm a beast, I am, and a badger, what's more. We don't change, we hold on. I say that good will come of it. This is the true king of Narnia we've got here, a true king coming back to true Narnia. And we beasts remember, even if dwarves forget, that Narnia was never right except when a son of Adam was king. Lewis is picking up on a theme of, uh, found throughout the Old and the New Testament. God made his earth and God made his people to be ruled by his king. The solution in brief to the evils of a world plagued by sin and death is a godly king. Before I move on to 1 Samuel and the next two points, I wanna to return to that wording used by the author of Judges, that because there was no king in Israel, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. We should let these words challenge us and challenge our generation as powerfully and specifically as they're able to do. Subjectivism was not invented by postmodern thinkers in a post-enlightenment West. The idea that I have my truth and that you have your truth and, that's what, and that what is right for you may not be so right for me is just contemporary branding on the oldest lie believed by humanity. Uh, Eve believed that lie in the garden. The judges era Israelites believed it when they did what was wise in their own eyes. And that belief is the same idea uh, that holds our culture captive. We have made ourselves gods determining for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And we are reaping the fruit of our rotten seeds. The world around us, churched and unchurched, Christian and pagan, is defined by the conviction that it is good for me to define goodness for myself and to act accordingly. Uh, and this sin is realized in diverse ways. Um, maybe some worship God according to their own whims with their preferences and desires governing what is honoring to God. Perhaps others grab the flag of sexual revolution and run with it, rallying others to the extremes of infanticide and bodily mutilation and calling all who refuse to join their cause some kind of bigot. Or maybe our error falls somewhere in the vastness between these two examples. Whatever the case may be, we come up with good on our own or we call good evil and evil good and woe to the generation that is guilty of these wrongs. It's important for us to recognize that there is a connection between this subjectivism, this what's right for me is right for me, but maybe not for you, and the many errors and evils that surround us. The book of Judges agrees with human history that when we define good for our own, or even more when we tell every individual that it is good for them to define their own good, we will inevitably arrive at a place where many completely exchange good for evil. This fate is unavoidable uh, for fallen man's sinful nature. And we read the end of the book of Judges. It's a hard section of scripture. And we see a people wrought with rape and murder in a world where man's idea of a, a reasonable solution to a problem that they themselves caused is to murder more people and steal their brides. We see, uh, and then we, we think of those things and we look at our culture. We look at the world around us uh, where sexual deviance is praised, senseless violence often called justice, 
apathy and greed incapacitate many. And the governing command uh, that we are told again and again is that you should live your truth. We see the consistent conclusion of people doing what is right in their own eyes. And as we lament these sad conclusions, it's very easy for us to think that our solution would be different from the, the solution that is prescribed to Israel. But it's the same, we need a king. And unlike Israel of the distant past, we have one. We have the king that the world caught up in doing what is right in their own eyes needs. And now we must ask, if, if our problems are solved by a king, just as Israel's were meant to be, why was Israel reprimanded for demanding that king? And that takes us to the second point, this idea that Israel wanted the wrong king. Israel was clearly aware of their lack of a king uh, and their need of one, and particularly in light of Samuel's age and his son's wickedness. In 1 Samuel, uh, we read that Israel's leaders are moved by their circumstance to demand a king. But when we read this story, we're confronted by the reality that this request isn't right. There's something wrong going on. And we're actually explicitly told that this demand from Israel was a rejection of God as king. So how could it be so wrong for Israel to demand that God give them what he promised to give them? And I think what Israel is doing here is essentially the same thing that Abram did when he tried to have the promised son by Hagar instead of Sarah. The request for a king was not wrong, but Israel was not asking for God to fulfill his promise. Their threefold problem was demanding that God fulfill his promise by giving Israel in their own timing, for their own reasons, their ideal king. And in this passage, we see Israel's sins and uh, highlighted, and we see the consequences of their sins forewarned. In 1 Samuel 8, 4, we read clearly what the rest of this passage describes and, and implies. Israel's, Israel's elders initiate uh, their appointment of their king. They, they went to God through Samuel with their demands. And they said, perhaps God has promised a king, but he hasn't given one yet, and we are tired of waiting. One of the ways that we rebel against God is by failing to trust him in his timing. Maybe we think uh, foolishly that we know better than God. Perhaps uh, this failure is rooted in a doubt that God will ever give what he has promised to give. Either way, Israel's behavior captures a common sin. We reject God's timing for our own. In the, in the very next verse, we see another problem. Chapter 8, verse 5 of 1 Samuel, uh, we see Israel's motivation, the reason that they're making this demand. They want a king so that they can be like the other nations. The nation that has been called out from the world to belong to God wants to be like the world around them. What a familiar uh, and uh, instinct and desire. A desire that ought to be mortified in our own hearts just as it must have been slain in the hearts of the Israelites. I, I should mention here that when, if we were to turn to Deuteronomy 17 and read the description of what Israel's kings should be like, we would see the phrase that this will be a king like the nations. But it's clear from context that, that what that phrase means something different in Deuteronomy than what the Israelites mean in 1 Samuel. Uh, if we look at Israel's demands, the consequences of their demands and Saul himself, uh, we see that they are uh, asking not just to have a king in the same way that other nations have a king. They want a king who is just like the other nations' kings so that they as a nation can be themselves like the other nations. 
It's a subtle difference, but it's meaningful. Israel doesn't want God's promise fulfilled out of a trust or a hope in him and his ways. It seems instead that they want something, a king, that sounds like a fulfillment of God's promise because it would meet their, meet their needs and fulfill their desires. And if that motivating desire were good or even neutral, we might be able to extend some understanding to Israel, but it's, it's not. Their, their desire is a sinful one. The reason that Israel wants this king is because they wanna be like the pagan nations around them. And then finally in 1 Samuel 9 verses one and two, when Saul is described, Saul the Benjaminite, who is not of the tribe of Judah, where the king was promised to come from, is described for us. And we see why it is that Israel wanted him as king. Saul was tall and strong. He was rich and he was beautiful. He was just like, he was just like the kings that Israel saw around them. He looked like the right guy for the job because the credentials Israel was using to find the right guy were the same credentials that you might find in Egypt or Moab or Canaan. Saul's qualifications further demonstrate that Israel was not concerned with God's promises, but they were concerned with their own desires and their own wisdom. Israel's elders were continuing to do what was right in their own eyes. Israel wants the wrong king for the wrong reasons at the wrong time. And these three factors individually, let alone taken together, were a rejection of God as king. It was an act of high rebellion against their redeemer and creator. And again, their their concerns were legitimate. Uh, Their leader was dying. Samuel was good, uh, but his sons who would replace him were not good men. They were not like their father. And there was a governance problem. It needed a meaningful solution. But correctly identifying a problem does not necessarily mean that you will identify the correct solution. Israel's elders are reasonable and logical, and yet, as one commentator points out, they are still godless. The solution that Israel comes up with is earthly and human. Uh, It may be nice in theory, maybe theologically or maybe spiritually, to have God as your king. But when it came down to the civic reality of the issue, when it came down to their earthly problem of needing a human leader, Israel wanted a more tangible and earthly object in which to place their trust. And this sin uh, we see throughout Israel's history. We see it in the days of Moses, who was often rejected by God's people. We see it all through to the exile of Judah. All of, the, all of the other nations had kings. And Israel, if they were going to be taken seriously by themselves and their neighbors, wanted one as well. What a relatable temptation that is. How easily do we, when we are faced with threat or need or even opportunity, quickly turn to solutions that seem wise to those around us? Rather than trusting in God, which is a profoundly wise uh, act that seems foolish to the world around us, we, uh, we, we look to solutions for our problems by asking, what would that guy over there, the one who hates God, what would he do if he were in my shoes? This is exactly what Israel does, and God grants them their wish. And this is a good time to mention something that would be benefited, that would benefit from having more time devoted to it. And that's the reality that sometimes when God answers our prayers in the precise way that we ask Him to, it is an act of judge, uh, discipline rather than an act of favor. Imagine uh, the human example of the old school dad who catches his son smoking a cigarette and forces him to finish the whole pack right then and there on the spot. Um, God grants Israel their request, but as he does, he warns them of the consequences that they will experience if they persist in that demand. 
Um, Paul tells us in Galatians that God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. You wanna smoke? Enjoy the whole pack. Enjoy the coughing and the wheezing and the potential vomiting that will follow later on. You want this king now to be like Canaan? It's yours, but you do not get the king without the king's garbage. Six times in this passage, we read the phrase, he will take. The king that Israel wants is not the king of Deuteronomy 17. He is not the king who will not acquire for himself many horses, wives, or excessive gold. He's not the king who writes a copy of God's law for himself so that he would be governed by it and govern his people wisely. And he is not the king who does not lift his heart above his brothers. No, he is the king who takes. Moreover, when we look at the idea that Israel getting their new king and having him ascend to his throne will be a removal of God from his, not in reality, of course, but in practice for Israel. Israel is told that their king will take the best and 10%. These qualifications mark off what of Israel's wealth, land, and livestock and crops belongs to God. It is God to whom Israel is supposed to give 10%. It is to God that Israel is supposed to give their best. And this king will take what is meant to be for God. The message in the warning comes, that comes from Samuel is clear. The act, though God grants it, is a fundamental rebellion against the Lord. Notice at this point in their history, Israel has not fully turned away to Baal or Asherah or Molech or the other false gods that they had turned away to in the past or would certainly turn away to in the future. They still make their sacrifices, it seems, with the priests and the Levites at the tabernacle. But they are a people in spiritual rebellion. Here we find another warning. We are more than capable of rejecting God while maintaining some a resemblance of faithfulness that convinces us that we are being faithful. I wanna be careful in making this point. I'm not saying that Israel in this moment uh, abandoned all faith in rejecting God. I don't wanna say that we, when we follow our sinful desires uh, and look to the world for hope in our worldly problems uh, outside of Christ, I don't wanna say that that is a, a, a rebellion that puts our salvation in jeopardy. The whole point of the gospel is that we are saved by God's grace. Any insistence upon the perfection of our faithfulness would leave us all lost. That's why we need a king. But what I do wanna challenge us with is the idea that we can be sinfully turning away from God by resting our hope or our confidence or our peace in worldly things, even if we are otherwise faithful to God. I wanna be aware of anything that might distract us from or weaken our reliance on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And that reliance can be weakened uh, and often is when we practice, when in practice we count on political candidates, bank account numbers, or other solutions to solve our problems. In this passage, we see how God deals with this kind of error and he does so with loving discipline. This king who takes will be Israel's only hope in time of need. Uh, because they have chosen to place their trust in their king, they must turn to him and not to God. In Israel, or in Samuel 8, uh, 18, we read, in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer in that day. God will not deliver Israel in their moment of misery a moment that was caused by the king that they demanded because they would have rather had that king than God. And God gives Israel what they want. God's refusal to answer Israel's future cries for help 
is his answer uh, to their demand for a king. Now, what appears maybe harsh at first certainly is not so. First of all, God is just. He, he gives Israel the consequences of their sinful desires and actions. Second, uh, God does not withhold his grace forever. He won't is- answer Israel in the day of their cry, but he will answer them in a greater day. And we'll come back to that idea in a moment. Thirdly, though, we see that God disciplines his people here. And when we see that, we're reminded of the words of the author of Hebrews, that God disciplines his true sons. And this discipline is the loving act of a kind father who proves to his children that he alone can meet their deepest needs and desires. No king can give Israel what God alone can. And the obstinate son learns this lesson by finding his desired king wanting. The lessons God was teaching Israel during uh, Samuel's final years are uh, lessons of abundant relevance for us today. We, like Israel, are tempted to solve our legitimate problems in worldly ways that are fundamentally a rejection of God. We are constantly tempted to look to those things in the world that the world places its hope in and seek or fashion our own salvation according to the design and the wisdom of the nations around us. When we're confronted with problems, uh, big or small in this fallen world, we far too easily look to the fallen world itself for answers. We think to ourselves, perhaps God is king, but this problem requires the election of my candidate to office. Maybe God is king, but this problem isn't theological. Perhaps Jesus is king, but I have to take responsibility, and this solution is the one that I've chosen. See how we can even take a good desire, the desire to take responsibility, and twist it to justify trusting in ourselves rather than God. When we see the wickedness of the world without a king, we are easily tempted to seek, and others are tempted to seek, the benefits offered by a good king without seeking that king himself. We want what Christ gives without Christ himself, as if we could water dried fields without rain or hose or sprinkler. Perhaps we reject the idea of God, a king entirely. Maybe we, we place another man in authority. Either way, we pretend that we can have what God alone gives without God. And when we are tempted, as Israel was, to seek the wisdom of the world, we would be wise to remember what uh, the words of commentator Alexander McLaren, who says, one of the first lessons which we have to learn is a wholesome disregard for other people's ways. Maybe we're motivated out of a desire to be seen as wise or winsome or reasonable to the world. Maybe we imagine ourselves to be particularly wise. Or maybe we have divided up our lives and decided that these areas are under God's reign, but these ones are under another authority and under a different savior. But there is no other savior. And this is the lesson that Israel learns, and it's one that we would be well to learn without following them and their foolishness. And it's with that that I want to turn to the last point to see how we can be drawn to the right king by the wrong king because the wrong king does bring us closer to the right king. I mentioned a moment ago that I wanted to return to that greater day in which God will answer the cries of his people. Israel has demanded the wrong king and their sinful request is granted and accompanied with all kinds of promised consequences for the sin that they insist upon. And in these consequences, as they unfold over the course of Israel's history and over the course of all of redemptive history, 
we see that God does bring about his intended result. He brings about the raising up of his king. In this moment of rebellion, which is a human attempt to bring about the promises of God, God moves us closer to the true fulfillment of the promised king. We see this reality in two ways. Uh, First, historically, the wrong king, Saul, moves Israel closer to David. And second, David, the right king, the king after God's own heart, uh, moves Israel and moves us closer to Christ. In the same way that the finished cookie dough is closer to the fresh baked cookie than the raw ingredients on the counter, David is closer to Christ and more like Christ than Saul and the longing for a king that preceded Saul. Saul moves us closer to David in Israel's history um, when, uh, by being the wrong kind of king. When Israel gets the king they request, they learn by experience that man's contrived solutions only lead us away from God and into destruction. They learn this lesson and they learn that God alone satisfies man's needs and man's desires. Only God can fulfill what God has promised to give and only God can give both and be the king that uh, his people need. Israel learns in a very earthy way uh, that they have a need that only God and God's promised king can satisfy. Israel was so close. As they stood before Samuel, lamenting their situation, they saw their need. And it seems that they were even right that a king in theory was the right solution. But they took their correct understanding, their awareness of a great need, and with it, they came to the wrong conclusion. And by coming to the wrong conclusion, they were shown that there was a right one somewhere else. And second, we see that reality. We're moved closer to Christ uh, by David. Hopefully I will have the privilege of expanding on that in the subsequent times I get to preach on the life of David in the future, but we see bits of it here. Not long into Saul's troubled reign, God raises up David. Israel is given the king they need to replace the king that they wanted. As we see the life of David, we see how he draws us nearer and nearer to the promised son of David, the one whose reign and kingdom will have no end. But until we get to David himself, we have to see how Saul moves us closer to David in order that we might be moved closer to Christ. Saul is Israel's king like the nation's king. He definitively closes the case on human wisdom. He is the tangible evidence that every human attempt to bring about the promises of God, whether they be promises of a king or of peace or justice or whatever else, will always fail. We cannot realize what the goodness of God alone gives by rejecting God and his ways. More simply, when we see what happens when Israel gets Saul, we see that Israel needs David. And when Israel gets David, we see for both positive and negative reasons that Israel and we need Christ. The lesson again is meaningful for us today. Many individuals, families, societies are looking for purpose and meaning and identity with joy and desperation. We're looking for answers in desperate times. Uh, We're looking for the peace in life that is promised by God. And as we look, we often turn, embracing the world and its wisdom, to political or other spiritual or financial or philosophical sources of hope. Christians and imitations of our pagan neighbors turn and make demands of God, demands that we be given a king like the nations, 
We do this by placing our hope in an election cycle, a job promotion, a social program, or when we model our Christian life or the life of the church off of things in the world. We do this in desperation, just as Israel did. Israel's need was great. We look at the chaos uh, that they experienced in the days of Saul, and we look at the chaos of the world around us, which is truly concerning. And we think that our wisdom will remedy the situation, just as Israel did. We look to those who oppose what is good and what is just, and we think that their problem is their candidate or their philosophy or whatever else, when in reality, the problem is putting ultimate hope in anything of men. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not encouraging Christians to disengage with the world. Quite the opposite. I want us to subject every earthly pursuit of goodness, justice, peace uh, to the reign of Christ. It's good and necessary to work for the good of the world. But we're Christians. We're citizens of God's kingdom. We are heirs with his king, our savior, Jesus Christ. And as such, we should do everything that we do in light of the ultimate uh, reality that Christ is king and by placing our hope in the salvation uh, that he alone offers. We shouldn't be discouraged by our circumstances into hopeless endurance, passively waiting for Jesus to come back. Nor should we do the opposite and be discouraged to the point where we look at our situation and try and find solutions to the problems we face outside of Christ. In The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien penned the following conversation between Frodo, the unlikely hero who's entrusted with a task that would determine the fate of the world, and Gandalf, the wizard who called him to this task and helps him in it. He says, I wish that none of this had happened, Frodo said. So do all who live to see such times, Gandalf replied, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time given to us. Uh, there's another old saying of uncertain origin that goes something like, may you live in interesting times. And, and this, which sounds at first maybe like a blessing, is, is actually meant as a curse. And I think many of us who have faced interesting times get the joke. Uh, many of us, like Frodo, wish we lived in uninteresting times. But I think we should challenge ourselves. Instead of lamenting the times in which we live, we should recognize our times in light of past times. The judge's era was a time of idolatry, rape, fratricide, folly, and all sorts of other forms of rebellion. The people of God under the judges lived in often far worse times than we face. And their lives, among other things, are serve as a, a, a real demonstration of man's need for a godly king. Our times uh, may be bad. The things that we face in the small scale and on the large scale may be daunting or intimidating, but they are not as bad as things have been. And more importantly, we have the king that Israel lacked. We have Jesus, the son of David, the true son whose reign has no end. He reigns now in victory. And Christ's reign serves as a reminder of two crucial realities. The first, which has been the main focus of this sermon, is that Christ alone fulfills the promises of God. No human solution can. The second, which is greater and even more fundamental, runs subtly through everything else that's been said this morning. Christ's reign reminds us that our need is far more than the worldly concerns that drive us searching for salvation, like Israel in the days of Samuel and Saul. We, we need a king who will deal with the root cause of all the problems that we lament, and the root cause of all those problems is us and our sin. 
And Christ's reign reminds us of this because Christ's reign testifies to the fact that he has solved that root problem in his life, death, and resurrection. Christ's reign is bringing the faith and repentance of many through the proclamation of his gospel that will bring us closer and closer to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises, that thing which we all long for. As we stand before daunting times or difficult situations, tempted to crown someone or something of our own liking as our king, tempted to choose somebody else to run before us and fight our battles for us, we would do well to remember Israel's folly. God's people don't just need some king, we need God's king. And we have Jesus, the son of God, who lived and died and rose again to conquer sin and give us life. He sits on his throne. Let us turn to him both for our salvation and the salvation of the world. Let us turn to Christ with the time that is given to us. May the reign of Christ slay our sinful desire for the wrong king at the wrong time and the wrong reasons. Let's remember what happened to Israel when they were given their king and remember what happens to everyone at every time and in every place when they place their hope in some earthly savior. And let us be moved to King Jesus by the utter impossibility of his salvation and good kingdom being found in any other alternative. Let's pray. God and Father, you are good and you reign Thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of your son. Thank you for the way that you have been preparing, had been preparing for him and your people Israel. Thank you for the way that we can look back and see your hand at work uh, bringing us our savior. In whose name we pray, amen.